Well, let's start off this morning with something known as the parable of the pencil. Nobody knows who wrote this. It's five simple rules for living. The pencil maker tells the pencil. And he says there's five things you need to know. One, you'll be able to do many great things, but only if you allow yourself to be held in someone's hand. Two, you'll experience a painful sharpening from time to time, but you'll need it to become a better pencil. Three, you'll be able to correct mistakes you might make. Four, the most important part of you will always be what's inside. And five, on every surface you are used on, you must leave your mark. We'll come back to the the parable here in a moment. We're going to look at wisdom like the pencil makers trying to pass on to the pencil here, but looking at it at a a deeper level here in our life in Christ. And we're going to look at something Paul says needs to exit our life. And then something David says that needs to be a part of our life. And then we're going to look at a pretty incredible story. I think will change everything. Maybe you think about how to pray one for another. But let's look at Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3 verse 8, things that need to exit our life. He begins by saying, now is the time to get rid of anger and rage. Things in our culture, you know, people upset about things, you know, families divided. Maybe you're, you're you know, facing marriage problems and you know that anger that happens sometimes when there's the, the toxic relationship. Whatever it may be that you're facing, I'm facing, Paul says these are things that need to be removed from our life. The anger and rage he speaks of, you know, is the same way we use that term today, you know discontent, having, you know, wishes for other people to have pain in their life or wanting to get even, but it's ultimately carrying around something that is a heavy weight in our life. And Paul says to get rid of things like anger and rage. How do you do that really? Well, one of the ways to do that is to focus on the, the gratitude in life and to focus on the love of Christ. Take a look at something here. This is a quote here from Helen Keller's life. She lost her sight and her hearing. She was about 18 months old, and that was due to an infection. And she had a teacher, Miss Sullivan, who was trying to show her how to communicate. And the teacher would trace, you know, letters on Helen's hand and give her things like a doll. And she'd play with the doll. And then the teacher would spell out D-O-L-L in her hand. And Helen would say, I learned hundreds of words this way. She would, for instance, pour water on her hand and then she spelled W-A-T-E-R, and that's how she learned to communicate. And then Helen would write back you know, her response when she learned how to spell into her teacher's hand. And one day her teacher spelled in her hand the word love, and then Helen said, what is love? And, and that's a great question. You know, what is love? It's, it's something we looked at here last week with Paul and, and describing perfect love and, and the things that love is, the things it's not. But ultimately, it's something that is experienced in our heart. And Miss Sullivan tried to explain that to Helen by saying, you know, you can't touch a cloud, but you feel rain. You can't touch the sun, but you feel the heat or the warmth on your face. And she said, you know, love is like that. You can't touch it but you'll feel it. It pours into your very being. And Helen still wrestled to understand. And then her teacher traced in her hand and said, you know, without love, you would not be happy. You would not want to play. And she started to grasp love from that explanation. Scott Spencer, though, I think a great quote here. He says, that is our objective as members of Christ's bride, to trace into the hands of the people around us the love of Jesus things we need to lose in our life. So Paul continues, Colossians 3.8, he says, now is the time to get rid of malicious behavior. 
this idea of seeking revenge or, or doing wrong to others. You know, on the screen here, Frank Sinatra, he passed away in 1998, very popular singer, of course, and very wealthy. And his, his daughter would share, you know, when he was about 80, he was still doing concerts, and, and sometimes he would struggle to remember the lyrics to songs and the audience. They, they, just, they were just these huge fans, and they would then finish the songs for him, and it was this uh, really special thing. But she would explain to him, you know, he was getting older and, and she said, you should take it easy. And, and one day he was very ill after a concert. And she said, I think you should, you should slow down. And he said, I can't. And she said, why? And he said, because I need to make sure everybody in the family's taken care of. And that was his goal. But here's an article from 1998 after he passed away, Family Feuds Over Sinatra Fortune. Here's one from 2015. Frank Sinatra's daughter is not expected at Barbara's services after years of animosity. Here's one from just uh, 2018. Frank Sinatra's grandchildren in feud over old blue eyes fortune. So again, Paul says, get rid of this anger and rage, malicious behavior, you know, families, the, the infighting. You know, we see things in our culture. There's things that, you know, are toxic. And Paul says that is a weight you shouldn't carry, rather replace it with, you know, Christ, his perfect peace, his perfect love. And again, here's something Keith Maynard wrote to try to express this, kind of updating the parable of the pencil. Again, the original unknown who wrote it, but then Keith Maynard wrote it from the standpoint of faith. And think about letting go of what Paul says to let go of and take now the wisdom here in the simple parable to say, here's a way to live different. So number one, you'll be able to do many great things, but only if you allow yourself to be held in God's hand. Two, you'll experience a painful sharpening from time to time by going through various problems, but you'll need it to become a stronger person. Three, God will be able to forgive mistakes you might make. And four, the most important part of you will always be what's on the inside. As we say often, Paul's words, the mystery is now Christ in you, the hope of glory. So and here's number five, on every surface you walk through, you must leave your mark. Just like we trace into people's lives, like Helen Keller, we want to trace into their lives, you know, the, the picture of Christ and the truth by being faithful to him. We leave a mark in people's lives. May it be one that is reflective of who Jesus really is. Back to Colossians 3.8, Paul says again as we end this verse, now's the time to get rid of slander and abusive language. Those words here are things like dishonesty, critical remarks of others. Years ago, Dale Carnegie, who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, one of the most popular relationship and leadership books, said, never criticize, complain, or condemn someone you are trying to influence. You want to influence somebody, you have to do it from a standpoint of grace. You know, but how do people operate in corporations or families? Often it's very negative and critical thinking by being, you know, critical to somebody. It's going to improve how they respond or behave. But when you criticize, complain, condemn somebody, you can't help them make the change. Often it comes down to understanding who you are in Christ. And Wayne Solomon came up with, with some declarations. You know, you don't have to write these down, but you'll get the idea of what he says. And maybe a few of these will stand out. But when you see yourself the way Christ describes who you are in him, 
you speak differently and you don't speak things like the slander and abusive language. So for instance, Wayne Solomon says, know who you are. You're a child of God. So declare daily things like I'm a child of God. I am born again. I'm redeemed. I'm a new creation because I am in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm his workmanship created in his image. I'm the chosen generation. I am of the royal priesthood. I'm in God's holy nation. I'm walking in the light of God. I'm an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with Christ. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I am well protected. I am led by the spirit of God. I'm a child of God. In God's eyes, I am a jewel. I belong to God. I do not choose him first. He chose me. So again, it's speaking differently using, again, the power of the tongue to speak life and not death. It's all about, again, as we say often, a different standard. You want a different standard of life and faith? You have to raise your own standard. So, for instance, here's something. Michelle Norris, just a fascinating article from NPR, talking about, talking about Pixar films, who's made the films, of course, like the Toy Story series and Cars, known for their amazing photorealism, you know, entirely created by computers. And she would share, you know, the more organic something looks or moves, the harder it is to create on computer. But here's the fascinating part about Pixar. Every frame of a film requires 17 hours to create. You see, that's why they are the best at what they do. 17 hours for one frame. It's a different standard, a different quality. It takes time. It takes commitment. And so for us to have a different level of faith living same thing, raise our standards, different commitment, different quality time that we spend growing in Christ. Things like the prayer, the worship, seeking him, studying scripture, asking him, you know, where he wants us to be in life. So let's look at something David says, Psalm 35, just one verse here, Psalm 35, verse 10. Paul talks about what needs to exit our life, the anger, the malice, you know, the, the abusive language. And here's David says, Psalm 35, something to enter our life. Notice him here, David wrote many hymns. And here's what he says, Psalm 35, 10, every bone in my body will shout. David cultivated a, a life of worship, so much so that he said, my bones, they will shout they will shout. So again, different type of faith, different quality life, different commitment. You know, to be able to say like David, you know, Christ, he is my life so much so every bone in my, my body will shout. But sometimes, you know, we refrain from too much commitment, worried about maybe what other people might uh, think about us. And again, we talk about this often. Look up here on the screen. You notice some quotes here from Gordon McKenzie, who works for Hallmark and, and puts on workshops. And it's this idea, again, that we often refrain from who we should be because there's the, the fear, the concern about what other people might think. Every bone in my body will shout, David says. You remember he was criticized by his wife because he worshiped you know, so publicly and so passionately. And, and she said, you know, you don't look very dignified. You're supposed to be the king. And you're out here, this extravagant worship of God. And David said, if you think I look undignified, you'll see that I'm going to look way more undignified because every bone in my body wants to shout for who he is. And Gordon McKenzie does these workshops in elementary schools. And, and he says, you know what? 
he walks into the room and says, how many artists are in this room? And he says, the pattern is always the same. And here's his words. In the first grade, the entire class waved their hands. Every child was an artist. In the second grade, about half the kids raised their hands. In the third grade, about 10 kids. By the sixth grade, just one or two would tentatively and self-consciously raise their hand. He continues, all the schools seem to be involved in the suppression of creative genius. They weren't doing it on purpose, but society's goal is to make us less foolish. From cradle to grave, the pressure is on, be normal. Often that, you know, that fear, that drive, that pressure to be normal stops us from being who we need to be in Christ. Following him, worshiping him, immersed in him. You know, perhaps there was a time when you were younger and you had a fleeting notion of, of your own creativity, your own life, and, and nobody ever validated that for you. And so you kind of went along with the crowd also to be normal. David says, you want to know what real life is? It's when you're so immersed in him that you say, my, my bones want to shout who Christ is. Billy Graham, he lived a different life because who he was on the screen that's who he was off the screen. And a friend of his would do the media appearances for him. His name was Larry Ross. And that'd be radio interviews or TV interviews. And Larry Ross said there'd be other people there. They might be businessmen, CEOs. Everybody would do a mic check. And he said most people, they did a mic check one of two ways. They would just simply count to 10, 1, 2, 3, 4. Or others would do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and he said every day, you know, Billy Graham, when he did the mic check, he would quote John 3.16. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And he said, I asked Billy Graham, you know, why do you do that? And I love the quote from Billy Graham. He said this, if the interviewer won't let me clearly share the gospel, at least the camera guy will have heard it. You see, that's living a different life where letting go of the things like the anger, the mouse, replacing that with the love of God, saying, let me trace Christ into other people's lives. Every bone in my body will shout. We're all sowing seeds, as Mike Murdoch says, every day. And as Murdoch says, everything begins with a seed. Someone plants a small acorn, it becomes a mighty oak. A small corner of corn is planted, it produces two corn stalks. Each stalk produces two ears of corn. Each year of corn contains over 700 kernels of corn. From that one small kernel of corn, the seed, 2,800 more kernels are created. Murdoch says, look at the seed as anything that you can multiply that can become more. Love is a seed. Money's a seed. Everything you possess can be planted back into the world as a seed. Your harvest is anything God gives back that benefits you. Joy, peace of mind, a friend, finances. Sowing a seed of faith simply means you give something, having faith, God will honor his word and give you a harvest of what you have given to him. Sowing a seed in faith is using what you have been given to obtain what God has promised. Jesus taught giving was the beginning of blessing. Luke 6, give and it shall be given unto you. Murdoch says again, giving is the only proof you have conquered greed. Everything you have came from God. Everything you will receive in the future will come from God. He is your total source for everything in your life. Never forget this. The secret of your future is determined by the seed you sow today. When you let go of what is in your hand, God will let go of what is in his hand for you. 
Psalm 35, 10, David continues, every bone in my body will shout. He says, this is what it shouts. No one is like the Lord. No one is like the Lord. And that again is why to, to remove things that need to be removed from our life and immerse ourselves in him. There's none like Christ. There's nobody else, nothing else that compares. Love this story here by Richard Dye in Acapulco, Mexico. He was a missionary. He'd been there two months, but he said he was homesick. He was lonely, feeling discouraged, feeling depressed. But every day he could look up on the hill, as you see on the screen, you'd see this picture of this cross. One day he wanted to drive up to the cross and, and see the property it was on. When he got there, it was a hotel. He went inside the hotel and he said, you know, the guy behind the desk said, do you have an appointment? And he said, no, but I'd like to speak to the owner. And the man said, what do you want to say? And Richard Dye said, I'm a missionary from America. I've been discouraged, but when I see that cross, it encourages me. I just want to thank you for having it up there. He said the man put his face in his hands and he began to weep. And he said he wept and he wept. Finally, after a few moments, the man looked up and he said to Richard Dye, that cross has been up there for years. I only get criticism. You're the first person to say thank you. And he said to Richard, you know, what do you need? And he would tell him, I, I need a place to meet. And Richard Dye writes this. The owner said, come with me. He took me to a beautiful chapel and said, we have church at 9 a.m. From now on, it's yours at 10 a.m. You begin services next week. Different seeds, different quality standards, different life. Committing ourselves to following him. As Calvin Coolidge said, nothing in the world takes the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing's more common than unsuccessful men with great talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated misfits. Persistence and determination alone are supreme. When we commit ourselves to following him, when we get to that place that worship is moment to moment in our daily life that we say, are my bones, they want to shout. No one is like the Lord. No one's like Jesus. That's when things like the anger and malice simply fade away. Love then enters our life. David goes on to say as we end here, Psalm 3510, he says, No one's like the Lord. You protect the helpless from those in power. You save the poor and the needy from those who hurt them. Christ is the one who is our life, who has our best interest at heart, who gives us the strength in him. Though we might feel weak, we are strong. He's the tower we run into. We are safe. As Rick Warren says, if you could change on your own power, you would have done so already. But you can't. That's why you need a power source greater than yourself. There's none like Jesus. Jeff Strite Worship leader shares weekly before they begin worship, God, we're not a strong people. We don't come before you because we deserve to be here, but because we need to be here. Christ's unlimited supply of his life, his faith, you know, is there for us. As C.H. Spurgeon would say, God never shuts his storehouses until you shut your mouth. You see, we have not because we ask not. And when we shut our mouth, then the storehouse gets shut. But as long as we confess, as long as we ask, we seek, that storehouse is always open. You know, Miriam, Moses' sister, when they left Egypt, wrote a song. That song is found in Exodus 15. Just maybe to look at some things here that she says. Her song says, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? 
to maybe begin to confess things like that in our own prayer. Who is like Jesus, majestic, holy, awesome and glory, working wonders. It makes my bones want to shout like David says. And if we're not at that place, to ask God to say, I want to be at that place. Holiness, as Michael Miller says, is an expression of our identity in Christ. Holiness is revealing the life of Christ who lives in us. So we make the trade-off, hopefully right here this moment, this day, to, to remove the things, Paul says, that garbage, things like the anger, the malice, abusive language. To trade that off for knowing Christ, raising our standards to seek him more till it becomes like David says for ourselves, my bones want to shout, who is like the Lord? Like Miriam says, he's majestic, holy, awesome, and glory, working wonders. Again, remember Scott Pierce, Scott Spencer, that's our objective as members of Christ's bride to trace in the hands of the people around us the love of our Savior. So I end with something here by Erwin McManus, I've shared his stories before, went to a seminar, I've read his books, uh, someone I really appreciate, he's a minister out in Los Angeles. He said one day his son Aaron went to, to youth camp, and like at uh, any camp, you know, they told scary stories around the campfire. He said when he came back, his son was just terrified, and he was struggling to go to bed. I'll read Aaron McManus' words. When Aaron got home, he was terrified. Dad, don't turn off the light, he said before going to bed. No, Dad, could you stay here with me? Dad, I'm afraid they told all these stories about monsters. And I wanted to say they're not real. And he goes, Dad, Dad, would you pray for me that I would be safe? I could feel it. I could feel warm blanket Christianity begin to wrap around him. A life of safety, safety, safety. So I said to Aaron, Aaron, I will not pray for you to be safe. See, here's one of those rubber meets the road moments here as we gather Sunday mornings and some listening on the radio that it's it's a time for us each to, you know, I share the, the quotes from faith leaders and most importantly, what scripture says and inspirational stories that they might inspire each of us to increase our faith, to, to make a decision. But ultimately, it's moments like this that bring us to that place that for you, for me, what's the decision you're going to make, I'm going to make? Are we going to keep carrying around things that are worthless or lay those down and pursue Christ to become our life? And this is one of those moments, wherever you might have your need, I have my need. There's a different quality of life available when we make a decision in him. And that's what happens here for this son of Erwin McManus. Earl McManus again, he said, I said, Aaron, I will not pray for you to be safe. Then I told him, I will pray that God will make you dangerous. So dangerous that demons will flee when you enter the room. And he goes, all right, dad. But I pray that I'd be really, really dangerous. We're all leaving a mark in the world. May it be our own prayers. It becomes like fire in our bones that declares, you know what, there's none like him. I want to have a dangerous faith tracing into people's lives the promise, the truth, the grace, forgiveness, the gospel of Christ.